You're listening to 10 Points, a podcast with your hosts, Ash and Nicholas, where all the talk is Canadian Highlander, our favorite format from the best trading card game ever, Magic the Gathering. Hey everyone, it's me, Ash. And me, Nicholas. And today we're going to talk about the concept of threat assessment. But before we get too far into that, I want to talk about our best cards from Tempest. So, Nicholas, what do you have for me? Uh, so this was actually a pretty good set uh, as far as uh, best card from goes. Um, and I ultimately landed on Wasteland. Uh, I think it's one of the more versatile cards in the set and shows up in a lot of different decks. Um, Canlander has a lot of different land, non-basic lands that need to be destroyed, such as Urza Saga and Field of the Dead, um, Man Lands, etc. Um, so having the ability to slot something like Wasteland in, where the opportunity cost is really low, but the uh, potential payoff is really high, um, can be really helpful. As well as it just is really good in a lot of land strategies, being able to re re reoccur re. Yeah, reoccur it and uh, wasteland your opponent out of the game. Yeah, so I have a similar problem where there's, uh, you didn't really express the problem, I guess, but where there are a lot of really good options in this set. Um, couple couple notable ones are uh, Lotus Petal and one of my favorite cards ever, Humility. Um, as a blue-white player, I feel like I had to at least mention Humility. But the as a pod player, I despise humility. Well, but as a pod player, you also like. Um, what good card for pod came out of this set? Surely I, there's got to be one. If you're feeling really spicy, Goblin Bombardment. Uh, okay, so anyway, um, I went with a land as well. The land I went with is Ancient Tomb. Um. I wouldn't say it's quite as versatile as Wasteland, but it sees play in tons of different archetypes and is a card that is usually one of the best cards to see in your opening hand in such archetypes. Um, Medium Red and Hoof are just two examples of decks that usually utilize that card to a great degree, not to mention Death and Taxes and other aggressive uh, into the three and four drop strategies. So... Yeah, uh, set's really good. There are lots of great cards for the format in it. But, Nick, do you want to start us off by giving us a bit of a, a primer on the concept of threat assessment? Yeah, um, so basically threat assessment is the ability to decide what threats need to be dealt with and what threats can be left alone. Um, so this can come in a lot of forms, like if you have removal, uh, you can just decide if you want to spend this removal on this threat or save it for a future threat. Um, same thing with counter spells. Uh, counter spells are sometimes a little bit harder because you have to, uh, you, you only get one chance to use them. Once you pass up the opportunity, you uh, don't get it again. Um, but yeah, basically... The ability to decide whether or not something is a big enough threat um, that you need to deal with it. Yeah, so um, the way I kind of see it is uh, a lot like Nicholas said, figuring out how soon or how important it is for you to deal with certain things. Um, I like that you pointed out the distinction between the types of answers you have. Um, specifically, I guess it comes up mostly with creatures where you can use 
a lightning bolt or you could use a counter spell. But which one do you use, right? Um, and a lot of times, depending on what you're playing and what you're playing against, that can that answer can change. We're going to talk a little bit more about that as we get a little further into this here. But do you want to talk a bit about why it's so important to be to get better at threat assessment? Yeah, um, threat assessment may be one of the hardest things to master in Magic, despite how simple it seems on the surface. Um, but threat assessment is really important because it's kind of what separates the good magic players from the great magic players. Um, like a lot of newer magic players will just, if they have, if they're playing like a control deck or whatever, the very first spell that's cast, they'll instantly snap off that counter spell or that removal spell without even thinking about it. Um, but the more that you like delve into it, the the more of a process it becomes. Um, you really have to be taking into account uh, matchups. You really have to be taking into account the clock. Um, but yeah, threat assessment is just really useful in really deciding how, how games go um, in the long run. So I think we're kind of talking a lot on hypotheticals right now, but I think maybe if we get into some more concrete examples, it'll make a little more sense to some people. So do you want to explain kind of how you go about threat assessment from an aggro perspective? Yeah, so in aggro, uh, threat assessment may actually be one of the harder aspects of playing the deck. Because in aggro decks, or at least specifically red aggro decks primarily, um, a lot of your removal is also some of your clock. Because um, it usually comes in the form of burn, such as lightning bolt and um, other burn spells. So you have to decide if you're using the burn spell to kill your opponent or kill your opponent's creatures. Um, so really what it kind of comes down to is, I mean, first of all, can I beat this creature? Um, does it block all of my threats um, or is it gaining them some other form of advantage such as life gain or like shutting off my creatures? So if it's blocking your creatures and shutting off your attacks, um, that's a good sign that you may want to spend the removal on the creature. Or if it's some sort of hate piece, like like a soul soul sister or something, which you don't see a whole lot in Canlander, but there are decks built around it. Um, that's definitely something that you would want to use a removal spell on. Yeah, I think a really good example of... Um two big walls to aggro that they often want to use any removal they have on are uh, the first one is Corsair of Crufix, and the second one is uh, Kalitas, Traitor of Get. Both cards that are really great at blocking a lot of aggressive creatures because a lot of aggressive creatures um, don't always hit that four power to be able to actually trade with these creatures. But also, both Corsair of Crufix and Kalitas uh, in addition to being great blockers, just naturally gain life. And obviously when you're playing aggro, that's the last thing you want your opponent to do is gain some life. So um, you, you'll see sometimes aggro decks will put in some amount of removal that actually can't hit the opponent's face. For example, like I think the most ubiquitous one for red aggro decks is Flame Slash. And that's specifically... Though they can't use it to kill their uh to do damage to their opponent, 
they put that in the deck specifically for creatures like Corsair of Crufix, Kalidus, or other really good blockers that they need to get rid of for uh, as efficiently as possible. Yeah. Uh, do you want to kind of want to talk about um, how to gauge threat assessment when you're playing against aggro? Yeah. So while in my opinion, threat assessment is, uh, it's more dependent on what you are playing versus what you're playing against. What you're playing against is still very important. So I'll, I'm going to kind of approach this from the average case, I suppose, where when you're playing against aggro, what you what creatures you actually need to spend your removal on or counter spells if that's the type of deck that you're playing are the ones that you you don't have a really comfortable way to deal with else or uh otherwise such as blocking them effectively or rendering their damage irrelevant or or not nearly as relevant as it's supposed to be um so like for example if my opponent is plays a goblin guide and is attacking me with this goblin guide. You know, that's damage I don't really want to be taking, but I might not want to spend removal on it if I'm attacking my opponent with, um, what's a three power creature with lifelink? That's pretty common. That's not Kalidus. Um, actually, I guess, Murderous sure. Rider. Sure. Murderous Rider. That's a two power creature with, uh, with lifelink. Let's say for some reason I'm not blocking with this murderous writer. <laughs> um, okay, actually, hold on. Let me start this analogy over. I, I think I got into the weeds too much. Okay, my opponent has the goblin guide. I don't want to be. Uh, I don't want to be attacked by this goblin guide, but I do have a. Um, I have some two power, two toughness creature with lifelink, so I could trade with the goblin guide theoretically and gain to life and that be the end of it or i could just kind of be at parity with the goblin guide and just keep attacking my opponent gaining that life guaranteed every turn so even if they attack me i'm still getting some i'm getting value out of their attack because they're potentially giving me lands and i'm at parity i'm not losing any more life than i'm gaining so i'm staying neutral while dealing damage to them and they aren't putting anything else on the board for the time being so that's an example where even if you have removal, you might not want to spend it because you're not really being pressured enough and you have a way to kind of manage it. Um, another example is if you need to do other things with your turn to get you to a better goal, kind of like sacrificing the now for the later. So let's say you're playing a deck like Curb Your Enthusiasm. Okay, if you don't know what that is, um, it's blue, green. Sometimes there are additional colors you play, but it's a you you're ramping and taking extra turns. You're kind of a combo deck, um, combo control, depending on how you build it. Um, you might have removal that you could use on that goblin guide, but if that sets you off from ramping or doing whatever setup you need to do to actually get your game plan going. And the Goblin Guide isn't quite enough of a threat to be really threatening to kill you too fast. It might be worth not removing the Goblin Guide when you could because you have a greater, you get greater value from actually moving on with your game plan. So those are just a couple examples when you might not want to, you might not want to remove a threat from an aggro deck. But if they have enough creatures that their clock is two turns, 
you might have to spend that, like, take that turn off to spend that removal on the bigger creature so the clock slows down to four turns. And then you have more time to actually uh, play out whatever you're trying to do with your game plan. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think Ash summed it up pretty well. Um, against, yeah, against aggro, if if it's killing you, you probably need to deal with it. Um, but if you're able to keep pace with it or you need to develop your game plan, um, you can kind of hold off. Yeah. Um, especially if you can further your game plan and just gain even a little bit of life just to offset one, even if it's just a one-time effect, to offset one turn of a clock. Um, I think a good example of that is just, I mean, this is a great thing to do against aggro, but just cast Kitchen Finks. Like, you're furthering your board, you're putting up a good blocker, and even though it only gains you life once, maybe twice, depending on what goes on, you're still in a position where, even if they just cast Path to Exile on it, you already gained enough life back that you're not as pressured as you would be by just, you know, playing out, we'll say, a Grist or something, you know? Just as an example. Um, but, Nick, do you want to talk a little bit about how mid-range goes about threat assessment? Yeah. I know um, you've played a little more mid-range than me. I do play a decent amount of mid-range. Um, and the big thing to consider in mid-range is really... Obviously, it depends on the matchup, because um, mid-range is generally played very differently depending on the matchup. Um, but the big thing is... You if something is bigger and better than what you're doing, you need to deal with it. Um, so you can usually let some of the smaller threats, um, of like stick stick around, uh, because most of the mid range threats are, um, gonna be in the like three, four, and five, um, five drop slot, and will generally just be better than what your opponent's doing. So you can kind of let those, uh, like, one and two drops um, kind of stick around. I think actually a perfect example of that, um, that this may not be Highlander-specific, but just based on, like, my perception of how it happens versus, like, the quote-unquote common wisdom, I think it might be a more Highlander-specific thing. Um, I'm sure everyone's heard the term Bolt the Bird, right? You always want to kill the turn one mana dork because if someone's playing turn one mana dork, they're doing something dumb and unfair with it, right? Well, I think that's not really true in Highlander. Uh, You can disagree with me if you want, but I I think that's not really true in Highlander because they're so ubiquitous in almost every green deck that oftentimes, and your removal is usually so scarce or, or like valuable that the mana dorks themselves usually aren't the problem and your deck is usually good enough at managing your opponent and putting your own things in play fast enough that you don't need to worry that much about what they're ramping into or that that they're ramping into it but rather don't actually spend your removal on the mana dorks because oftentimes it's much more important you save that removal for what they're going to spend that mana on because they're going to get to it anyway um, I think the kind of exception to that is when you get a two-for-one where you're taking their dork. Like, if you're Collective Brutality and you get to take their dork, like, you're pitching some garbage card and getting their dork and something in their hand. Or if you're getting to Coligan's Command to buy back your Tarmogoyf and kill their mana dork for free, like, then you're going to do it relatively early. Um, but I don't think killing mana dorks is something that often 
mid-range players in Highlander are particularly excited to do unless it's just kind of a freebie. Yeah, I think it depends on your hand and the matchup as well. For sure. Um, I think oftentimes, I know I'll be sitting in the driver's seat of a deck and playing a turn one dork and just hoping that it sticks around because the difference between resolving a turn two Oko and a turn three Oko is like massive. Um, But that being said, if you are like sitting on a prismatic ending or something and your opponent plays a bird turn one, um, it may be worth holding up for for that three drop or whatever because, like Ash said, they're going to get it get to it eventually. Um, so you just need to figure out how best you'll be equipped to deal with it, which is really uh like we're talking about a big part of threat assessment is yeah even mana dorks can be threats depending on the matchup in your hand, um, and you have to assess is this bird a big enough threat for me to kill it right now or can i let them accelerate and then wait until they play whatever they're accelerating into yeah i should clarify i don't mean that in an absolute sense but just as a you don't just fold to the common wisdom like really think about the value of your cards and when like when you're going to need them like obviously if you if your opponent goes Forest, Birds of Paradise, and then you could Taxium Probe and see they have three drops and only one more land, yeah, sure, kill the Birds of Paradise. But, you know, if if you're up against, if you know you're up against another mid-range deck, and they go Deathrite Shaman on one, and you're like, I mean, like, sure. Like, it's not going to do that much early. Just kind of depends what you're expecting to go up against them. Like you said, it depends on what your hand is. But just in an absolute sense, I don't think you should just blindly, blindly remove the one, turn one dork. Yeah. Okay. I think we got off on a little bit of a tangent. That's that's my bad. Um, I do agree with what you said though about if your board can block it or deal with it, don't worry about spending removal on it. But. Uh, once they're once they're if they play something bigger or better than what you have going on, that's when you want to spend your removal. Um, I would I would agree with that. Yeah. Now, uh, would you want to talk a little bit about the best way to, like, uh, how you can best assess threats against mid range? Yeah. Um. So uh, as we talked about in our all about mid range episode. Midrange decks, their kind of their goal is for every single one of their threats to be good enough on its own. Um, so usually against midrange, threat assessment is like this probably needs to die. Um, but if they have multiple threats, you need to decide which one is more important and which ones will I most likely be better equipped to deal with later um and of course it depends on what you're playing against mid-range as well but most of the mid-range threats are going to kill you so unless you have something bigger and better than what they have or you know that you're going to have a better way to deal with things later you probably need to deal with whatever they're doing uh you know threats are good it kind of you kind of make me remember, like we talked about in the all about mid range episode. When you play mid range, your goal is to just keep slamming cards that are better than your opponent's cards. Like that's the very fundamental idea of mid range. Like you're 
your cards are on average better than their cards on average, right? Well, I kind of think like when you're playing against midrange, I feel like every time you remove something, you're just like crossing your fingers like, oh, please don't play a better thing next turn. So like if the midrange deck is working, your removal isn't great because they're just going to play a better thing next turn. So that's my nihilistic uh, comment about playing as midrange, I suppose. Yeah, against midrange, you just need to hope that you're enacting your game plan better than they are, uh, because their threats are just going to be real good. Very, very good. Okay, um, now this is this is one of my favorites to talk about. This is what I probably know the best, is threat assessment when you're playing control. But uh, how about you talk a bit about it, and then I'll add anything if I think you missed it. Uh, yeah. So, in, in control, I mean, you kind of have to deal with everything, and that's obviously what the deck is designed to do, is deal with everything. Um, but I think that the timing of dealing with everything in control is what's really important. It really comes down to, do I deal with this now or later? Because there really is no ignoring threats in control. Um, but... It's very important that you use your resources to their maximum value. Um, a really good and classic example of this in control is if you if you if you have a wrath of God in hand, um, and they are like playing out threats. Uh, sometimes it's worth just letting all of those creatures resolve so you can get like a three or four for one with that wrath of God, as opposed to like. Uh, swordsing their turn one bird and then counterspelling their turn two Tarmogoyf and then like you've got your wrath on turn four but they only have one or two creatures um, and you realize that you could have afforded to let those things stick around um, and dealt with them later so timing and control is the big thing um, yeah I think I think that's most important you got anything Ash? Yeah, um, I agree that it's not about what do I deal with, it's about when do I deal with it. Um, I do have one little uh, one little thing I want to flip the script on a little bit. You said that um, uh, you have to deal with everything eventually. And in broad strokes, that is true. But they're assuming control is in a winning position or doing pretty well. Um, there often comes a point in the game where you actually get to stop dealing with almost anything, and it comes down to there's just a few things that you have to spend cards on. I, I Let me clarify. I should say it gets to a point where you don't have to spend cards to deal with things anymore. Um, and a great, a great example of this is, like, I'm sure everyone's done this. They've been playing against Control, and, like, they got them down to four life, and if they can just resolve a little more burn or get through a little more damage... Then they win, right? But the control player plays an Elsbeth and then a Shark Typhoon. And then they are up four cards. And they, all, you know, all this stuff. So it gets to the point where um, your opponent's permanents are going to be able to repeatedly deal with whatever you're doing. So they don't actually have to spend cards on you anymore. Um, Elsbeth, Will Kenrith. I'm, name, I'm naming blue white control cards. Elsbeth, Will Kenrith, Shark Typhoon. Chandra Awakened Inferno, um, Liliana the Last Hope, Liliana the Veil, even Chandra Awakened Inferno. Well, no, I was trying to switch off of I Blue know. Light Control cards. Um, 
even Oko, Thief of Crowns, you know, all these cards that do a really good job once they're in play and you've controlled a little bit, like with a little bit of help, they they get to the point where you don't have to spend cards to deal with your opponent anymore. Humility is another great a great example. Um, you get to the point where you don't really have to deal with individual cards your opponent's playing, except for like a few things. Um, uh, honestly, I do sometimes think of blue eye control. It feels like how old modern um, lantern control used to work, where you get to the point where there's only like four cards you have to worry about, and once you deal with them, you can't lose. Blue eye control uh, can often find itself in a point where most of your opponent's cards don't matter anymore, but there are a few they still have that you have to figure out how to deal with, or you have to figure out how to deal with the grist that's in play, and once you do, you win, right? Um, so sometimes uh, if you're able to put off dealing with your opponent's stuff till your permanence can deal with it, um, you don't actually have to deal with them anymore because effectively you already have. Um, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah. Um, and I, I always like to, like, people think, like, oh, Elspeth is just, like, a big finisher. But in no. control, like Ash was saying, Elspeth is, like, a wall. It's just blockers. You play, you play Elspeth as if it were Wrath of God, like, 90% of the time when you first cast it. <laughs> yeah. And then eventually, yeah, it kills them, but you don't really care about that because... And no. by that point, they're not doing anything. Yeah. By the time you end the game, the game has been over. Um, yep. One other little thing about... Uh, this is specifically blue-white, but um, I think there are, there are analogs in other control decks for this same idea, where oftentimes, if you get really good at playing control and you um, know what you're playing against, you're going to keep hands that don't just have answers, but very specific types of answers. So against blue-white control specifically, because it plays so little to the board, at least not to way late in the game, there are a lot of things that are really, really good against it that you only have a few a few ways to answer. One example is um, Clothis. I think it's God of Destinies. Um, Ren and Six is another great example. Uh, actually, really, a lot of Planeswalkers are great examples. Um just cards that you don't have that much different specific removal for, but um, you need to be able to remove those kind of things when you play against them. One, so, like, uh, we've talked about Chad and his deck a lot. When I play against him on blue-white, there are, like, three cards that I save my Prismatic Ending or March of Otherworldly Light for. Because... If I don't deal with them, I'm going to die, and I have to use specific removal for them. And the, those main ones are Cinder Vines, Renin Six, and Clothis. So if I have a Cinder Vines, or sorry, if I if I have a Prismatic Ending, and he on turn two plays a Tarmogoyf, I'm probably not going to use. I'm not going to use my Prismatic Ending yet. I'm probably going to dig for more removal and just take some damage, or look for mana for a Wrath before I spend my Prismatic Ending on that, because I know I have to use it for something else later. So sometimes Threat Assessment is also about Answer Assessment, if you're playing a Control deck. Yeah, um, yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, do you want to go into Combo a little bit, and talk about Threat Assessment and Combo? Yeah, I do expect you to take the baton from me on this one, um, when it comes to the Creature Combo stuff. 
Yeah. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit more about like really hard dedicated combo like Paradox Academy or Eggs or Storm. Um, but when it comes to decks like that, or like Flash Hulk, for example, that's a great example, or any Oracle deck, really. Um, if you're a really dedicated combo deck, your the main way that you're going to play is not about interacting with your opponent very much or even caring what your opponent does. As long as you're not dead next turn, you're probably just going to keep doing whatever you're doing to try and win, to try and kill them. Because playing combo is kind of, I think, one of the best examples of one is not zero. Where if you're not dead yet, you don't care that much. Um, so combo decks usually don't play that much interaction. And the interaction they do play is not for removing your opponent's Goblin Guide or removing your opponent's Tarmogoyf. The interaction that combo decks like this play are for removing Collector Oof or Douthy Voidwalker or Opposition Agent. The cards are going to interrupt your deck's ability to do its thing. Um, because if those cards hit play, you have to deal with them if you want to win. So um, you're usually not going to use removal on just creatures that are power and toughness. Um, the exception to this is if you're close to going off, but you need to use that removal to get another turn off their clock, um, then you might do that. So the main two things to think about when you are playing combo because of your limited removal and, or, and counter spells is, does it kill me right now or does it stop me from doing my thing? If it does, If one of those two is the case, you might spend your removal. Otherwise, you're probably going to hold it. Now, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, how that works with creature combo decks? Yeah, um, I'd say creature combo is similar, um, with the exception that a lot of the creature combo decks also have um, kind of a strong mid-range plan. So you're, it's less about, like, set up, set up, set up, go off. It's more, it, it's definitely more interactive, um, but your interaction comes in the form of a lot of... Blocking. A lot of creatures, well, I mean, there's a lot of creatures, Solitude, Palace, Jailer, Flame Tongue, Kavu, Fury, um, uh, Custody Lich. So a lot of, the, you do have like a lot of, and things like Glenelendra, you have a lot of creatures that have the ability to interact, um, but like Ash was saying, it's either does it kill you right now, or does it stop your game plan um so in creature combo good examples of this would be i mean the biggest example i guess would be humility if you have a glenelendra on the battlefield this is an easy one this is uh the kindergarten section of the threat assessment quiz but if you have a glenelendra on the battlefield as a creature combo deck and your opponent plays uh, humility uh you better believe that you're sacrificing that glenelendra for the humility um obviously it gets much more complicated than that but uh i think in general with pretty much any combo deck um apart from some of the super soft hybrid combo decks um you don't worry about what your opponent's doing that much unless it either kills you right now or stops your game plan okay so it kind of has a similar idea you just have a little more interaction to work with yeah um you can afford to play more interaction in those decks. 
Because... And I guess, of course, you don't always have to laser focus on the combo kill. Yeah, and and that's where it sometimes in those um, like creature combo decks, your threat assessment becomes more like a mid-range deck and less like a combo deck, depending on how your hand is shaping up and how the game plan is playing out. So sometimes you you do just play like a mid-range deck um, and assess threats that way. Refer back to earlier in our video for that section. Um, but generally, if you're going for the combo game plan, you're just trying to stop them from stopping you. Now, before we switch to the playing against combo section, I do want to make a quick distinction and correction. Um, I want to remove Thassa's Oracle decks, with an asterisk, and Time Vault decks from this from this discussion, because those decks, broadly speaking, are much more of a control deck that happen to win with a combo, rather than a combo deck. By by design so those decks you really have to treat them much more like a control deck and like with a little bit peppered in of interacting with a combo but you can't um you can't expect them to be like playing like a paradox academy deck would yeah yeah definitely okay so now i guess we've kind of talked about how combo decks are going to play against you but do you want to maybe i guess we can talk a bit about how you play against combo how you assess their threats yeah i'd say that's pretty easy um is the card in the name of the deck uh if so <laughs> okay hold on it. uh okay, no, no, I, hold on I'm hold kidding on <laughs> for the most part um but no a threat assessment against combo is generally pretty easy um at least on the the base layer, um, if it's comboing off, it needs to die. If not, you probably don't need to deal with it. Like in Storm, um, Underworld Breach, obviously you need to deal with it. Um, but even like certain spells can be considered like threats, like things that are not directly part of their combo plan. But if you're on control, uh, you constantly need to be worried about um, a silence because if they land a silence uh, all of a sudden it doesn't matter how good you are at assessing threats because you can't interact with anything so some threats even are not currently existing um, but you know that they are something that you will need to deal with so you need to have a way to deal with that silence uh, whether that's countering the tutor that they use to try to get the silence or making sure that you have enough counters up to counter the silence and their combo piece or whatever. Um, some threats come in the form of potential threats. Yeah. Um, one thing I think about playing against combo, and there are two exceptions to this, so uh, I, I will address those, but broadly speaking... It's usually okay to let them cast their tutors and then just counter whatever they get with the tutor. If you're playing counter spells, you can usually let them resolve their tutors and then just counter whatever they get with the tutor. Now, there are a few exceptions to this. Um, the first one is what Nicholas just said is if you are anticipating them getting a uh, silence, you probably should counter the 
actual tutor itself because they're going to save that silence until it's time to go off and they're going to be able to protect it at that point usually. So um, don't counter, uh, sorry, do counter tutors if they're playing Storm because they're either going to get a silence or uh, they want their cards, like their grave, their cards are better in their graveyard than in their deck most of the time in Storm decks, like a dedicated Breed Storm deck. Um, so you probably don't want to let their tutors resolve at all. Um, additionally, if you're playing against a Paradox deck or a Creature Combo deck and their tutor is the type of tutor that puts the card directly into play, then obviously you can't counter that once they go get it. So that's another type of tutor you would want to counter. Yeah, I would agree. Um, and, and this is why like threat assessment is such a a deep, like a a, a deep like a, it's a an hilly roller coaster. Yeah, an iceberg. That's what I'm looking for. Where like the tip is very simple, and it seems like it really isn't that much. But the deeper down you go, the more and more complex layers there is. Like there, there is no exact formula for how to assess threats, um, and I think like. Uh, tutors and combo decks are a really good example of this where it's so situationally dependent on if you need to counter a tutor or let it resolve because obviously if you can let the tutor resolve and then counter the thing they got with the tutor that's much more mana efficient Um, but if they're tutoring for a protection piece or something uh, then it's much less good for you and you don't know what they're tutoring for until they've gotten it and sometimes you don't even know after they've gotten it so it's really a deep deep cave of knowing knowing the matchup knowing your opponent's deck and knowing how you are going to be able to beat your opponent's deck yeah um i do think that um at first you said that playing against like assessing threats against combo is pretty simple but i think that i think at it's very basic level it can be especially if you're playing against decks that are like an a plus b kind of thing but i think it's actually it's probably the it gets really really difficult if you don't understand how their combos work or how the best to interact with them um so uh, one thing to help you play against combo decks and assess threats better in combo decks is if you're able to borrow a deck or build it yourself and try it out and understand its weaknesses, that's great. But just learn, even if you can't do that, just learning how the decks work so you know what they need to do what and what cards are valuable to them. I mean, that kind of goes for anything, but I think specifically combo because it's harder to understand combo than other things without getting your hands on it. Yeah, honestly, I've always said the best way to learn how to beat a deck is by playing the deck. Because once you play a deck, you know what you don't like to see and what has what kills you. And, and what then, thin ice they're playing on. Yeah, and then when you play the play against the deck, you know exactly what your game plan needs to be to beat it. Yeah. Um, so we're kind of down to our last, uh, our last topic here. You want to talk a little bit about how, uh, tempo, uh, threat assessment works? Yeah. Um, so we actually talked about this in our, um, all about tempo episode, but in tempo, the biggest thing to take into account is their clock versus your clock. Uh, tempo, you absolutely cannot afford to just counter or kill all of their threats. 
Um, so you really, really need to pick and choose what you're dealing with. So usually you you'll you'll figure out is my clock faster than them if I deal with this. If the answer is no, uh, you either need more threats or to uh, counter or kill their threat. If not, you can let it sit around and just let the race be close and just barely come out on top. That's kind of Tempo's game plan, usually. I think one other thing about Tempo you have to consider, um, which is kind of, you think about it the same way Aggro does, where if they have a creature that they're just going to block with, they're not going to actually be using to race you, that might be something you have to deal with. You might have to remove that, um, if able, obviously. Or if they have a Planeswalker that is... If they have a Gideon of the Trials, and they're just stonewalling your creature with it, they're not actually clocking you with it, that's something you're going to want to try and remove because there's not a clock race. It's just you're they're just stopping you. Um, and most decks are built to play a longer game than tempo decks. So... You, you know, if they're, if you guys are just staring at each other, you're usually not winning. Yeah, that that is an important thing to consider is, does it, really with, with any deck, the, the main question you need to ask yourself is, does this stop my game plan from working? Um, but yeah, yeah, I guess very, very, very briefly, just to go through those, aggro's game plan is kill you fast. Midrange's game plan is be bigger and better than you. Control's game plan is survive. Combo's game plan is kill you faster but with combo. And Tempo's game plan is kill you a tiny bit faster than you're killing me. Yeah. So, uh, like, those are the game plans that if they're disrupting, you want to kill. Yeah, and and really, threat assessment is learned not by us telling you how to assess threats this can be a good like start if you think you struggle with threat assessment um but really just playing magic it's something like threat assessment is something you just pick up over the years of getting all of this input put into your the database that is your brain as you play all of these decks and learn okay, I killed this creature in this situation and then I died because of it or I didn't kill this creature in this situation and I died because of it or I didn't counter this tutor and I died. or It just it, it adds up until you it starts to just become kind of a natural thing um, yeah. knowing when to and when not to deal with uh, certain threats. Yeah, I think more than anything, this episode is intended to teach you how to think about that assessment not exactly how to assess the threats or rather which threats to assess which way yeah because like we said there's no algorithm for it every single game of magic is different from the games of magic played before it um so there's no no exact algorithm it's just getting a feel for how to assess threats and a general a generalization of which threats need to be dealt with and what matchups. Yeah. Um, but uh, always kill Ragavan. Even if you're like way ahead of Ragavan on board and they draw it on turn 18, just kill Ragavan. I hate that card. 
Yep, you heard it here first. Yes, I know I played it on camera. Don't don't at me. Um. Okay, so uh, I've got several Highlander recaps. Like I have like three Highlander recaps. I I have. Oh wait, I have four. I have four Highlander recaps that I can go through. I think uh, I have three, but I'm just going to pick one, uh, as to not take too too long. So maybe I'm probably, just pick your I'm, favorite one and call it good. Mm, I don't know. Oh wait, just kidding. I wasn't here for one of these. It was just I just have a list of what people played in our meta. <laughs> Okay, well, you do yours first while I figure out which one I'm going to share. All right, uh, I'm going to do one from my most recent week. Uh, I played Bant ETB, uh, and I I promise I am not uh, sharing this because I went 3-0. I'm sharing it because there was one particular matchup that was super close and super dope, and the way the game ended was amazing. Nicholas, you're allowed to want to share when you do well. That's okay. Yeah, but it's more fun when I get absolutely dumpstered and you hear about how I got, like, comboed off on turn one. And I mean, I like talking about when I win, so that's what I'm going to do. Uh, I suppose that is perfectly fair. Uh, I do well, anyways, go for find... it. Okay, yeah. So, my first match, uh, I was against Blue-White Control. Um... Game one, um, I was able to land a Glenelendra. Uh, she kind of stumbled a little bit in the early game. And then once I got a Glenelendra down, I was able to... I, I was playing Banty to be with a time walk, a time walk spell secret package, which is very relevant to note. Um, so I was able to land a Glenelendra. And then after that, uh, having two free counters was just enough to be able to protect my combo. And I was able to go off. Uh, game two, I got very mana screwed, uh, and then eventually she assembled the Cryptic Command Mystic Sanctuary Synergy, um, and yeah, I, I died. And then game three was wild. Uh, it was a very long game. Um, it was very back and forth. Uh, I had her down to, like, two or something like that. Um, and it gets to the point where I, I think I cast a charming prince to scry two, and one one of the cards was Ottawara, the land that bounces a permanent. Um, and I at the time I didn't need it, but I was like, I feel like this can come in handy later because it's an uncounterable way to bounce a planeswalk or whatever. So I scryed it to the top. And I draw it, and like I said, she's at two. And I've got several creatures. Or I have two creatures. The Charming Prince and something else. Both of which are uh, lethal. So I attack. She pays five mana and flashes in this Solitude. Which would be very bad for me, because it would exile one of my creatures. And then block the other and let her gain three life. Uh, And I look down at my hand of Ottawara. The uncounterable oh. bounce spell. I'm able to bounce the solitude. And somehow, by some miracle, she had like three cards in hand and a Sensei's Divining Top. And she spins the top 
and none of the other six cards are white cards, so she's not oh able to evoke oh, the solitude. Are you serious? And I get in by like the the skin of my teeth. Holy cow! It was it was quite the game. That's goodness gracious. So how many? Did you have any legends? I don't know if I was listening to that. Did you have legendary creatures? I don't know. I guess it doesn't really matter, does it? I don't think it does. All right, all right. Anyways. All right. Um, I, for my second match, I was against uh, Seth on clean, Green Black Rock, and I wrote down Oko Go Burr times two. Um, <laughs> I, I landed yeah, in Oko, Oko both do go games burr. and did Oko things. Oko Go Burr. Yeah. And then my third match, I was against Naya Midrange. Um, game one wasn't much of a game. I was able to combo off pretty quick. Um, and yeah, nothing really happened. Uh, game two, I got just absolutely stomped. Uh, he had a really fast start. Um, and I just, I just completely got bulldozed. Um, and then game three, game three was quite wild. So, I had three lands the entire game. This is probably a solid, like, 15 turn game. And I did not draw more than three lands the entire game. But one of those lands just so happened to be a Gaia's Cradle. Ah, there uh, So, I was, I, it was like a pretty explosive hand of, like, it, and one of my lands was also a Dryad Arbor. Or, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> my, like, uh, I was so very fragile, but somehow your... it worked out. Because I was able to go, like, turn one Mana Dork, uh, turn two Cradle into, like, a three drop, and then turn Wait, three. Wait, so your third land was also green? Cradle, yeah, yeah. Uh, wow. I, I was off of blue and white mana for most of the game but at one point i drew an aether vial which was essential to my game plan because i was able to get the vial to three uh i think the actually i think the the only land that i had uh was um i think it was the the blue green fast land um, I don't remember what it's called, but it's not important. But I, I had, I had a, um, some mana dork that could make way. I think it was like a deathrite shaman or something that died eventually, but it uh stuck around long enough for me to cast a, or no, maybe my land was a temple garden. I, I anyway, I was able to cast a recruiter of the guard, um, and go get a soul herder, and then vial in the soul herder. And then after that, I was just able to accumulate such a value engine. Uh, and he never saw the Wasteland, which I was terrified the entire game. I mean, you uh, didn't lose the Wasteland, right? I do. But the good news uh, in a game in which you draw no lands after the first three is All that gas. every single one of your cards is gas. And if you can somehow <laughs> cast it with like, oh, I don't know, a Gaia's Cradle. Uh oh it it wins the game, so I was. So you said to... that was against the mirror. No, that was against uh, Naya Midrange. Oh. 
goodness. He's got a lot of removal, too. Yeah. Um, which he, he did remove quite a few things, to be fair. But, uh, not enough. I, I believe, I, I played a Thrag Tusk and I played the Blitz Thrag Tusk that is not as good in Ban TTB. Um, yes, the Rhino. Yeah. So, I, and then I was able to flicker one of those to gain, like, I, I was just like, I delayed the game enough to the point that he ran out of resources and his threats simply weren't enough because I just had, I, I was, I just played a ton of stuff. Grand. Truly grand. All right. Do you pick a, pick a match or a day? Yeah. So I'm going to briefly talk about, um, I played black green elves and three owed. I played against druids, Seth on the rock, and then Matt on Naya. Um, but that's not the interesting thing. Nothing interesting happened there besides Elf Gober. Um, we're going to talk about the time that I 3-0'd with Blue-White Control again. Because some interesting things actually happened. Okay? So, I hear you rolling your eyes, Nicholas. Stop it. No, nope, go for it. Now, round one I got the buy. So, I said 3-0 and that's kind of... It's technically true. Uh, round two, I go up against Mono White like aggro range equipments stuffs um i won't i, I kind of smack that deck because i have enough removal for the actual creatures and then he dies um but i uh at one point he cast balance after i cast ancestral recall and i was like oh that's unfortunate so what i did was i cast snapcaster mage um, and targeted Ancestral Recall, and then he's like, oh, well, then you have to discard the cards. And I'm like, no, no, balance resolves. So I resolve balance, discarding, like, one card, and then I cast the Ancestral Recall out of my graveyard, and it was awesome, and then I won. Two recalls will do that, I guess. Recalls, very good. Yes, and then uh, <laughs> round three, I go up against Grant on his mono-black Necropotence, Control. I guess it's. I don't know. It's like. What is that deck? Uh, I'd say it's it, shifted it's, more towards it's, control mid range. It has a lot of interaction, but I think it also has like gifted Aetherborn. So I don't know. Either way, he's uh, he's got. We got to this weird board state where I have humility in play, and it's bad because I have humility in play, and I'm at one life. Okay. He has a Meat Hook Massacre, which if you don't know, the notable thing is it has a Blood Artist effect on it. So if his creature dies, he can deal a damage to me. Okay? So far, so good. Um, he also has a Liliana of the Last Hope. So any creature that he has, he can use his Liliana Last Hope to kill it to drain me from my last point of life and kill me. So I survive on this board state for like six turns. Okay? At one point I do let a creature resolve. And then I swords to plowshared it in response to the Liliana. But I somehow finagled this game into a point where I could win. Um, I don't even remember how. I think it involved a Jace the Mind Sculptor ult ultimate as my win condition. But it was... 
it was precarious for a long time and I was sweating. Um, and then round four, I shook hands. So had some interesting stuff going on that day. Yeah, there you go. But also green, black elves, legit good. I played Harold unites the elves and it was good. I don't even know what that card does, but it it's sounds a saga. Elf-y. No, listen. Okay, it's a saga from Kaldheim. It's two black green. First chapter, you mill three, then return an elf or Tyvar from your graveyard to play. No CMC stipulation. Um, second chapter, you put a one-one counter on all your elves, and then your third chapter, whenever you attack with an elf this turn, the def- you put a negative one, negative one counter on the defending. Uh, defending creature, defending player's creature of your choice. So if, if you attack with five elves, you get to put negative five, negative five, divided as you choose across your opponent's board. That's super solid. Yeah, so like you just like play out your el- your good elves, let them kill them, and then slam that and buy them back, and then make all your dudes big, and then you like delete their blockers and they die. Yeah. Anyway, black green elves, legit good, would recommend play um, it kill people and i don't even like i don't even play aggro decks but <laughs> the deck is so fun um okay well thank you guys oh by the way against that deck um all of them they're all the threat elves is too good they're all the threat cast wrath for god well okay anyways kill the lords but you know either the lords are the ones that draw cards usually yeah um basically okay. if it says more than tap to add a mana it probably should die uh, I will say that is a deck where you do probably actually want to kill the mana dork on one. Yes. Because they go so fast. Um, all right. Anyways, anyways, thank you all for in, uh, 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 putting up with um, us talking about elves. But uh, I hope you guys learned something and are able to use this information to become better magic players and beat me better. Um, yeah. You have anything else to share? No. Uh, thanks for listening. We will see you next time. Have a good night, everyone. Bye. Oh, it's just good night for us. They might listen to this in the middle of the day, huh? I mean, I guess it depends. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode of the 10 Points Podcast. And don't forget to count your points.